the best managers are those who know how to lead. And that's not always the same thing, right? Just because you're a manager doesn't mean you're a leader because, you know, manager's objective is to get work done through other people. But for a leader, right, your objective is to role model and be an example and a champion for how work can be done, right? And so when I then add this idea of being trauma-informed in that work, I'm talking about leaders who are truly invested in exploring and acknowledging how the experiences of other human beings impact how they show up and then by extension impact how the work gets done together in a social setting. Hello and welcome to the Veritatos podcast, where we believe that leadership is first and foremost, a spiritual path. My name is Dr. Lauren Borden. I'm a professional certified coach, industrial organizational psychologist, and your host. Together, we'll bridge the divide between the practical and the spiritual, the conscious and the unconscious, and of course, the mind, body, and spirit all to support you in deepening your growth so that you can create the impact in the world that only you can have. It is so good to have you here. Let's get started. Marie, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing awesome. How have you been? Pretty good. I'm, it's funny. I was thinking as I was making my smoothie before this conversation, I was thinking about how weird it is when you're recording a podcast because you, it's like you sort of start the conversation and act as though you haven't just been having a whole totally different conversation. And I feel like every podcast host does it. Or right. like well, you have to, that's part of it. Cause you gotta, well, if it were like a TV show or video, right. There'd be like a green room beforehand. There'd be like other things. And then you really would start a conversation anew. Right. But in a podcast, it's different different. So totally. I actually, it's funny. I was recording with someone you, who, you know, Michelle Aiken, and she was like, you should just start recording. Like as soon as they get on the call. And I did a couple of episodes actually like that. And it felt, it like felt that was even weirder. Cause it's like, yeah. people, people just like come in and you're talking about like the weather and all types of stuff. All kinds of, well, I don't know. Someone it might be interesting. I mean, I don't know. I'm also a fan of like, maybe we all need to stop creating so much data all the time. Like what are we creating all of it for? Where is it going? Why are we doing this? Who's using it? Where is it going? Where is it being stored? Like who's it being? Used? Yeah, well, that's that's like a whole thing. That's a whole thing. I was watching. There's um, I don't know if you've seen this. There's an amazing like docu series on Netflix called The Future of, and oh. one of the episodes is like the future of death. <laughs> but it's like really fascinating because we're now at a place where every human being is creating tons and tons of data in their lifetime. And we're at a place now where, you know, when someone passes, their family doesn't want that social media account to be deleted. So now you have Facebook who owns all of that data being asked to maintain that for you in memoriam. And so they're like, okay, well, so if all of these companies own your data and we're now moving to a place with like AI and technology where you could create the likeness of your grandmother and upload all of her data so you could still engage with her, right? Some experience of her after she passes. And then we wouldn't, doesn't make sense to bury a body because that's not actually 
feasible, sustainable for the planet. So like all these things about like, well, but then who owns the data? Who owns all of your grandma's memories and photos and pictures and things that she wrote on her social media profile and all of that? It's like, well, all these big companies own all of that. Whoa. Right. (laughs) It's totally different too, because I think about how... Like, you know, when our grandparents died or generations back, it's like, I imagine these, there are these like boxes in our garages of like writings and journals and stuff. Right. And like so much of that is online now. All of that is digital, but where are you storing all of those assets? When people plug in, it's like, oh, well, it's all on Medium. It's like, okay, yeah, but you know, you don't own that, right? Like it's not on your server. Like you just gave that to a third-party company and they own all of that. And when you die, they own it. And your family would have to ask to access that. Right. So it's like, but it's this interesting thing of like who owns the essence of a person because it doesn't live in like the material anymore. It's all digital. We all live in this very digital space and all of our interactions. So it's like, well, where does all that go? What a weird go? world we live in. Like I the, know. who owns the essence of a person, like where we're in conversations about who owns the essence of a person. I get from a legal perspective, like the necessity of that. And from a business perspective, thinking yeah. through who owns your data? Like that's an important conversation to be in, but it's just, I just had a moment of, I call them like alien moments where have you ever felt like this, where you kind of like zoom out of a conversation and you're like, this is so weird. This is so weird that we're like, this is humans. Yeah. Is that kind of like when you look at a word too long and then it no longer makes any sense? Yeah. It's a lot like that or where I'm having, it's like, I'll be kind of watching, watching a conversation or watching kind of, it feels like looking at society through new eyes where like if I were just an alien and I just dropped down mm-hmm. like out of the ether and was like observing humanity and what we're doing, what would be yeah. surprising? Like the first time it ever happened to me, I was driving on the road and I was like looking around. It was in New York City. I was driving through New York City and I had this, I was in like Fidei, which there are these really financial districts where they're like there's Stone Street and stuff where mm-hmm. it's like these really old streets. And I was like imagining like if someone time traveled and they saw all of the cars along the side of the road and like all of the people and all of the, everyone's yeah. like rushing to get places and there are all these cars and everything's honking and how weird that would have been. Like when New York city was first built, right. like yeah, it was a very weird out of body. I'm not explaining it well. It was a very <laughs> weird out of body moment, but I have, it's like kind of looking at like where we've got gotten as a humanity yeah. and like how we are with technology and how we are with each other and all of that. It's sort of it is bizarre. Thing. It is bizarre. It's super it weird. Very, very bizarre. Especially like it's like I remember when like Facebook started, or like I remember like there's so many things now, like especially like having kids where they're like, what? You did what? Or things that they're not really like, of course, like that's how it was, but they have no concept of it. So like they're having these alien moments around things like a rotary phone or like cursive. Nobody teaches cursive anymore. So like my kids don't know how to like write their signature. And I'm like, this is you should know how to like sign your name but they don't teach cursive. So they're like, this is weird. Why are we doing this? You know? So there are a whole bunch of things like that where it's like, huh? Huh? (laughs) Yeah. The huh moments. It's kind of, well, and this is actually one of the reasons why I was really, I mean, this is a large leap to make, but like, I feel like this is touching on one of the big reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast today, because it's like, I feel like a lot of the conversations I've been in have been around how we evolve as a society while staying connected to our humanity. And like staying connected and like where those advancements are in service of us and where we're actually like losing touch with everything. So y'all are going to understand why I'm making that connection when Marie (laughs) actually introduces herself. It's all going to make sense. It's all going to make sense in a minute. But Marie, like, what are you up to in the world? And I'd love for you to introduce yourself. 
So yeah, so I'm Marie DeVoe. I am a DEI consultant and inclusive leadership coach, and I run a training company where we do professional development for leaders that just focuses on effective communication and diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. That's it. (laughs) Just that. Just that. Also, I'll be pumping your tires in the intro, so this will be probably a repeat, but you are such a catalyst. Like my experience of you is every community Mm. that you're in, every, like you just, even just the way that you show up, like people are really changed as a result of being in your orbit. And so Mm. this, everything you're up to in the world, just really, really cool and really, really powerful and like heart led and all of the things. And, And so Marie, how did you find yourself doing this work? Yeah. So, I mean, before I started my firm or, you know, my practice, I worked in learning and development. And I think, you know, I wear like two hats, right? So there's like the learning and development, kind of this like HR training hat. And then my other hat is like coach, at least professionally, those are my two main hats. And for both of those things, I feel like they're very organic places that people arrive at. And I say that because at least in the coaching sphere, every time I've spoken to a coach or been introduced to a new coach and I ask the question, like, well, how did you become a coach? Somewhere in the dialogue, you realize that no one becomes a coach. People are like born into that. It's really much more of a calling. And the experiences that led someone to then claim that as part of their identity is more the story than it is, oh, and now I'm a coach, right? And I feel like it's the same also with learning and development. There's not like a clear career path of like, oh, I focus on like helping people learn things and make their lives better, but it attracts a certain type of person. And so for me, some of, I think those qualities or how that's shown up in my experience has been, I grew up like loving communication, public speaking, learning how to convey ideas and express them to people in ways that were like resonant. And I studied creative writing in school because I thought I was going to do that. Again, another way to like express and communicate, connect with people. And then coming out of undergrad, a lot of my work then shifted to um, supporting youth and families. And that's where I really started digging in to this idea of equipping adults with tools that could empower communities. What does it look like to have people be more empowered about the spaces they're in, in service of at the time it was children, it was like juvenile youth, right? Because when adults act like grown-ups, the world is infinitely better. And I think a lot of folks have a hard time being grown-ups. And so I worked in professional development, helping leaders step into leadership. I did that for score educational centers, which then became Kaplan. I did that for Kumon, which is another large education company. And so I did like area development management, which was like going around to new business owners in the New York tri-state area and supporting them with like, okay, what does it mean to own this business, to hire employees, to be responsible for all of these families who are coming to you to support their children. And then the final like full-time corporate role I had before starting this business uh, was the director of learning for a large charter school network in New York. And so all of my experiences in the professional sphere have always been really grounded in how do we translate leadership And what does that look like? And how do we communicate that to people so it's replicable? And so through that really found the thing that I was passionate about was that moment when someone really steps into owning their capacity as a leader and how powerful that is, how rewarding and affirming that is. And of course, 
eventually someone kind of like looked at me. I was like doing a training and they're like, I don't know what you're doing now, but you're really good at this. They're like, have you ever thought of coaching? And I started doing that as a consultant. I would take days off of my full-time job and go and like coach teams and lead workshops. And eventually my corporate workplace became extremely toxic and unbearable. And I was like, I don't like this, but I really like that over there, this coaching thing, this like facilitation thing. So why don't I just do that? And that's what I did. (laughs) That's what I did. And that's how my business started. That's so cool. That's, I think that's the first time I've heard the full story end to end. And there were so many nuggets in there that I also wanted to bottom line. (laughs) One was like the actual claiming of the term coach or frankly, claiming of your purpose, right? Like Mm -hmm. so many people are like, what am I supposed to be doing? And it's like claiming the identity of the thing that usually has been there the whole time is like so profound. I want to circle back to adults being adults and like in the workplace because that hello. 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 But actually, I'm really curious about the transition out for you. Like, because you had, so you had the two, like, I talked to a lot of people who are talking about doing that transition and it's Mm -hmm. like either waiting for their business to like fully grow so they can like make the leap and have the income replacement, like replace their Uh, current job or the like, I'm just going to leap and hope the parachute appears. Like, what was that process like for you in negotiating that transition? Well, so. So first thing I'll say is starting a business, deciding to be a business owner is very much a birthing process. And so it really is a parallel experience to like having kids. And I say that because you will never be ready. There will never be the perfect time. You will never be fully equipped. You will never know all the things. You will never be ready because to birth something, to help something nurture and grow is an iterative and organic process. You will never be ready. So just decide. (laughs) You have to just decide. And inevitably, and I found this time and time again, if intuition is telling you to do it and you don't listen, the universe will conspire to force you to move. You'll be forced. And I I call that like a divine interruption. It's like, oh, you weren't listening. And so now this is going to be more painful in order for you to get to where you're supposed to be. So that's what I'll say if you are hesitating, (laughs) stop. (laughs) Because you're only delaying the inevitable and likely creating more pain in the process. But for me, like that transition, it was gradual. I did start consulting because that was something I was able to do easily as like a salaried employee elsewhere. I'm like, well, I had like four weeks PTO. I can literally take that time and do something that's more enjoyable and more fruitful for me. And that really helped me build a client base, really build my network. And then because I did not move fast enough, I was essentially forced out of my corporate role through a series of like workplace harassment and bullying practices. And so it was very uncomfortable, right? I literally, I had plans to put in my notice two weeks after they decided to let me go. And so, you know, I was kind of like, yeah, I'm I'm getting there. I'm getting there. And I was let go and it forced me, great. I'm going to do all the things I said I was going to do. But I was preparing for that transition for a while. I had, you know, built my website and started thinking about my content and who are my clients and was very strategic with the work I was doing on the side as a consultant of fostering those relationships and those connections. So that when I did leave, I just picked up the phone. I'm like, hey, I have more time now. (laughs) I can support you more now, right? And so it was a lot of that preparing for the move, even if I wasn't moving as quickly as the universe was advising me to. 
Well, and it's interesting because the way you're describing it, it feels like the collision of a lot of different things. Like you were making, like creating the strategy. You were also getting the intuitive download, albeit like, it sounds like that was maybe a newer, I know that like you are very practiced I know now. what that is now. Yeah. 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 Now you're like, you're like super in that conversation. And back then it's like, mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people find themselves in that space where they get it. And it's like, I don't, bleh. Yeah, like that doesn't, right. Or that sense of like, well, that doesn't make sense because how am I going to replace my income? Which is a very brain-based logic way of thinking about how you're leading your life. <laughs> Right. But that's what trips people up is they kind of get stuck in the headspace and become paralyzed instead of doing the thing that their heart is telling them to, that like spirit is telling them to. But, you know, if you don't move, you will be moved. So, what a sound bite. It's seriously so true. Well, and that makes me also wonder if, like, that process for you, it sounds like also what you went through at the end was really flipping hard, like the increase in the intensity and the like toxic workplace and all of those things. And I'm wondering, like, I know one of the things that we've both kind of nerded out on is trauma-informed leadership and like, and how that plays out in cultures and workplaces and how that's such a big lens that you use in your practice now. And I'm wondering, like, did that inform where you are now at all? Like, how did that manifest? Absolutely. Absolutely. It did. And when I did leave that full-time role, it was very much with this awareness that the way it ended was not right, right? That I was not being acknowledged. I was not being honored in that space. And it took a while to heal from that hurt, but it also prompted me and gave me the tools to really relate to people around DEI conversations. And almost immediately, like within a year of me having that experience for myself, I was teaching workshops for others around anti-harassment and bullying in the workplace, right? Around like, what is inclusive leadership at work? And it was very easy because I could pull from personal experience of what that feels like, what the impact is of that. And then at that time was then leveraging that to start digging into the research and the science around what are the impacts of that type of really like emotional scarring in the workplace. And it does have really long lasting effects for people. It does take, I think the last stat I read was it takes about five years to like heal psychologically from instances of bullying. And so it gave me a lens to really connect with people much more intentionally around some of these themes. That's really cool. We've never, it's dawning on me that we've never actually spoken about this, like even offline. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I never told you this, but in grad school, I was, my main focus was arrogance and leadership and like abusive supervision. And I couldn't figure out why I was so fixated on it. I was like, so fascinated. And then I like went out into into the world and was like, you started working and you're like, oh, oh, (laughs) (laughs) right. Yeah. Because it's kind of everywhere. Anyway, but, but for you, so what is trauma-informed leadership to you? Like, what does that mean Mm -hmm. to be in that conversation? Yeah. So I think first, just thinking about leadership in general, or, and I do think like the best managers are those who know how to lead. And that's not always the same thing, right? Just because you're a manager doesn't mean you're a leader because, you know, manager's objective is to get work done through other people. But for a leader, right, your objective is to role model and be an example and a champion for how work can be done. Right. And so when I then add this idea of being trauma informed in that work, I'm talking about leaders who are truly invested in 
exploring and acknowledging how the experiences of other human beings impact how they show up and then by extension impact how the work gets done together in a social setting. It's are you willing to one, make yourself aware of, listen to and acknowledge how those experiences impact the person as it relates to the work. Mm. I'd imagine also that's become even more important post-COVID. It was always important, but like having gone through that collective trauma, like have you seen that shifted? Well, but it's it's interesting, right? And of course, like now you can look at like the global state of the workplace, right? Gallup has their like annual report and they talked about like coming out of COVID, our mental health and well-being as a global workforce is like in the toilet. Like people are completely destroyed. Also, if you remember 2020, yes, like global pandemic, lockdowns all over the world, which creates an, again, like very collective experience of trauma, not to mention all of the death that we experienced and was all around us. But then that was also when the Western world was experiencing like a racial reckoning, which is also like a whole body of historical trauma being brought to the fore and on display while we were all locked in our homes and had nothing else to look at or distract us from. And so you combine those two things and then you ask people to show up to work and like get stuff done. And it's like, wait, the trauma-informed leader needs to acknowledge the impact of all of these factors. How is that actually impacting the whole person, right? And then what does that mean in terms of how we shift how work gets done in service of the people, right? As opposed to always in service of the project or the task at hand. My gosh, it's so good. And it's so flipping true. I also, I think, and you spoke to the, it's like how the universe moves with these things, Mm. you know, at, at the top of the call. But I think when I was really present to through that was like the excruciating, huge impact, not fun or good and many like, and I'm not saying that it was like, it was good by any means, but it's like the kind of wisdom and the fact that we were all stuck at home yeah, with nothing to look at, but what was happening with that racial reckoning, with the systems and structures in the United States that are getting like pushed to the surface for us to look at. Yeah. And it, it felt like the universe was kind of going like, sit down, watch. Exactly. It's one of those, again, it's like a divine interruption. Like these are things that were probably noodling at us definitely for a while, right? This kind of lack of empathy for our fellow man, woman, child. I say all the time, like the pandemic was such a gift because for half a second, we had this very acute awareness that we're all breathing the same air. And I remember early 2020, maybe like January, I was living in New York at the time. And I went into the city to meet another consultant who we like had a shared client and she was visiting from Asia. And she was talking about what was happening at the time for her in Asia and how work was getting shut down and companies were closing and things were getting shuttered because of how bad COVID was there. And I met her at a Whole Foods in Midtown because we were completely oblivious to how maybe we should be shifting our behavior because we breathe the same air that they breathe in Asia. And I reflected on that. I was doing a a keynote earlier this year and I was like, you know, it's like we thought somehow it wouldn't impact us. And so we didn't care. We did not care. We didn't do anything preventive. We did not prepare ourselves. We didn't care. And then we had the nerve to like act surprised when it showed up on our doorstep. So true. So there is this element of like, oh, right. Remember what happens to one of us happens to all of us. 
So maybe we should act that way all of the time instead of waiting. Well, you know, that's not my problem or I'm not impacted by that. Like if we actually acted like, you know, when, when COVID broke out in the Eastern part of the world, that it actually did impact us, what would have shifted? What would, could our outcomes have been different? I'm sure they would have, but we chose to look the other way. But to your point, when you're all locked inside and there's nothing else to do, but be confronted (laughs) with that, it does create like a new momentum and a new urgency if only to like try to stop the pain. Whoa. What you just said had something also click into place for me where I think that was the first time I, I just mentally drew the connection between how we were about COVID and how we've been about DEIB and conversations and racial justice in this country. And frankly, like all of the other, all all of the other, yeah, all the things where it's sort of the awareness that we breathe the same air, the awareness that we like the, the liberation until everyone's liberated, no one's liberated. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's also like, and I I speak to this point a lot of like people understanding the distinction between sympathy and empathy, right? COVID broke out and we all sympathized, right? When we needed to empathize, (laughs) right? Because we just literally chose not to feel that pain, that discomfort, right? It was easy to, oh, turn off the news. Oh, that sounds bad. Are you seeing this thing, right? It was all over there. But there is something around when the pain is our own, when we really recognize it as our own, when it's really felt in our body, in our space, in our experience, the motivation to make it stop is different. And that's the power of empathy, of really being willing to feel with someone instead of just feeling sorry for their experience. Mm. How do you know you're in sympathy versus empathy in your mind? Well, for me, it's the visceral reactions that I have to someone else's emotional experience, right? Where I'm like, and a lot of that I think has to do with a willingness to be vulnerable and even open to feeling what other people are feeling because we we don't have to be, right? There are ways that we do like shut that off. And sometimes that's for our own protection, right? (laughs) To not feel all of it all the time, right? But there is, for me, like, I know in conversations with people when someone's experiencing an emotional event, when I'm empathizing, I do feel it, right? When someone's crying and I'm like, oh, right? Or when someone's expressing love, like you feel it, you feel with them, right? As opposed to choosing to detach yourself emotionally and look at it like a third-party observer, right? And again, I think there is like time and places where that is supportive, that is useful at times when we do need to separate, right? And be able to do that. But there is something really powerful of being willing to feel what someone else is feeling in service of really relationship, right? So that's what it is for me. I don't know. I'll flip it back to you. Like, how do you know when you're empathizing versus empathizing? It's similar for me. A lot of it shows up in my body and emotional space. Like actually, I read a a book I've been reading about like neurodivergence and actually like autism and like autism spectrum disorder Mm -hmm. and things like that. And one of the books, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the name of it. I'll put it in the show notes. But it was talking about how, like one of the big things that they talk about in the autism discourse is around empathy. And there's Mm -hmm. emotional empathy and there's intellectual empathy. Mm -hmm. And like how, for me, intellectual empathy feels more like sympathy. Like I can imagine my imagination. that. That must be hard. Yeah. Yeah, it's like an intellectual conversation, like the other person's in their heart and in their body and you're coming at it from your brain. brain. Mm -hmm. And 
And like you said, I think the piece, and I would imagine particularly for people of color, like around, oh, hey, actually, it's good for me to stay emotionally, like maintain that emotional distance, like so that you can maintain your emotional state and your integrity right. and actually take care of yourself. Like that's, right. that's really, really important. And that like, for particularly for, for white folks, oftentimes that sympathy becomes a, or that kind of intellectualizing is a way of creating distance so that we don't have right. to actually sit in it. You don't have to sit in it. You don't have to feel it. And if you don't have to feel it, then you can pretend it's not happening. Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so for me, empathy is like when I can, I'm in my body and I'm actually like in it with you and I might not be experiencing exactly what you're experiencing, but I'm allowing myself to like be in my heart and be in my body and actually like be with you in the experience without feeling like I need to duck out. Right. And I think that awareness is really key. And I'm actually curious about this, what you think about this, like that awareness of when am I hiding? Like when am I in sympathy because I'm hiding or when am I in sympathy because it's actually like the most honoring thing for me Mm -hmm. in this moment? Like, I don't know that any, for me, I'm like, I just have to be really fucking honest with myself. But yeah, yeah that's like something yeah. that's coming up for me in this conversation. Yeah, too. well, it's it's interesting, this idea, right? Because I do think, I love this like kind of thread or on around the awareness and the very active choice to open yourself up to empathy or not, right? And some of that is very much grounded in, you know, taking care of yourself first, <laughs> Right. In that regard, in terms of like, oh, that's not because oftentimes I often think like when we're choosing not to empathize and going to that more intellectual place, I do think it is a way of protecting ourselves. So very much it's, it's you know, like a trauma response, like, oh, I'm going to choose not to engage with that because I cannot go to that place right now. Or that is going to connect to some other place of pain for me and my system. So I do think there's an element of that as well, of this very active choice in terms of what serves you in the moment that happens. And it's very, very individual and very, very different based on, you know, the relationship of the two or more parties that are engaged in that conversation, right? Yeah, I love that. What I'm curious for you, what's your journey been like? Because I also know that, I mean, I think the last time we talked... I mean, we've talked like a couple of times, but one of my big memories of you from like three years ago was that you had just read the book Pussy by Regina Thomasauer. So you were kind of like starting. I remember you were sort of like starting on the divine feminine conversation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or like deepening it, like that that was something that was expanding for you. And I'm curious about how, like what's that journey for you been like in going from head to heart or from like, Mm -hmm. like deepening that? yeah. Like I've always held you as being very connected to your empathy and like the divine feminine work I know has a way of like opening the aperture even more. And I'm curious about how that's like, how's that been for you? And what's that journey been like? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I know like for me, and this is something like I've just really kind of discovered about myself through a lot of work in the divine feminine space. And I I did work with a number of practitioners to support me in this in terms of thinking about spiritual awakening, did a lot of like inner child work to better understand myself and my own like desires, right? And like also like reawakening my vocabulary around like pleasure and joy. And so much of that work was me like discovering my natural way of being and showing up in the world is very, very sensitive and very, very emotional. And which I imagine is probably true for a lot of people. Like 
out of the womb, I think we're pretty well connected emotional beings. And a lot of acculturation happens that has us shut a lot of those parts of ourselves off in service of other types of relationship. Work is one that comes to mind for me right now. But for me, it was like reconnecting with my inner child, reconnecting with this idea that emotions are permissible, reconnecting with the idea of pleasure and not being ashamed of pleasure and all of its manifestations, right? And so I did a lot of work with a coach around spirit and pleasure. I also worked with a coach around feminine pleasure and desire. And so really digging more into like the sensual nature of who I am as a being, um, which was extremely supportive. And through those experiences, really starting to uncover how connected I am to my emotions and feelings and bring awareness to like, oh, when do I like shut it off? Why am I shutting it off? When do I not feel safe? right? To show up that open or that receptive, right? But it has been a lot of work. I think therapy also had a hand in this. I think three years ago, I worked with a therapist who literally gave me homework where I just had like a feelings wheel. And my job was just to like create more vocabulary around my emotions. I don't know for your listeners, like there's more than four emotions, people. As it turns out, I actually also had a feelings wheel. I remember this. My therapist handed me a feelings wheel. It was actually for my therapist, it was a feelings list. It was like this old, like from the 60s, like typewritten. Right. Like like you could tell a million times. Exactly. Like you could tell she'd been using this thing for like ever. And she she was like, she said, You don't know how to label your emotions. And I was like, whatever. I can label mine. I've got it handled. And she like slides this thing across the table. And, and she's like, which one are you feeling? And I was like, yeah. shit. And it, I stopped my brain, my intellectual brain, like scoffed at it, but it's an incredibly, mm-hmm. like that is such a great place to start in yeah. terms of, I love that you mentioned that. Well, cause it's so true. When I think about like, cause what I think at the core of what we're talking about is this like concept of psychological safety and emotional intelligence. And in order to get to that place of, you know, if we're talking about psychological safety, like first step, feeling safe to be who you are, you have to get acquainted with like all your stuff <laughs> like, and then actually acknowledge, yep, all of that's good. I'm good with all of that. Right. And so a lot of that, I think, is that vocabulary building and creating awareness around like, well, what am I experiencing right now? And then I'm good with that. That is allowable. That is acceptable. There is no shame in how I am feeling, expressing in this moment, right? Which is like step one, if we want to create psychological safety, do you feel safe to be who you are? I love that. That's such a, an important bottom line too, because it's, it's like in the conversation about belonging and the conversation about like creating communities where we actually see each other and can hold each mm-hmm. other and like all are welcome and have seats at the table. It's well, it's it's a both and. It's always a both and. And there's this like, are you creating an experience of psychological safety inside of yourself? Like, how are right. you with you, you know, right. as the exactly. foundation for it? Right. But even that, I love even that question, how are you with you? Right. Because again, it goes back to, do you even have vocabulary to express that and articulate how you are? Which is like emotions chart, <laughs> like, yeah. right? Like, how are you? Fine. Doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> what is the thing? Christine Sachs, one of our teachers, she always talks about. Oh, there's like an acronym. Fucked up. Insecure, neurotic. And then E is something like 
something with an E that you, is in the same vein. Y'all can use yeah. your, someone probably is listening and has the, they have it right. somewhere. No, out they can shout it out at home. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Well, so for you, what are those tools, Marie, that are like, so feelings we all like that get mm-hmm. you connected with you? Like if someone's Sally is like driving on the side of the road and it's like, okay, cool. I want to be in this conversation. And like, how am I with me? Yeah. Um, where would you suggest starting? Yeah. Well, so I'm going to caveat this by just saying everyone's journey is different and what your listeners are experiencing in their life and in their body is not what I'm experiencing in my life and body. So, but for me, what has really served has been, yes, feelings charts and getting like an increasing vocabulary around emotions, but also journaling, which has always been a great go-to for me. And when I say journaling, please know I don't mean like opening a Google Doc or like talking to Siri on your phone. I'm talking about picking up a writing utensil and putting it to a piece of paper and like moving your hand. Because when you write in that way, what happens is you're creating space between your brain and your body, right? And in that space, like you get to literally have a conversation with yourself right? It gets to pass through your body. You see it on the paper. It's then reflected back to you. And it's, I think, one of the most powerful ways to really have a conversation with yourself that can be truly enlightening, right? When you can't get to your therapist or can't get to a coaching session, like try journaling. You'd be surprised how you can literally talk yourself back around to reflecting your own experience and finding your own answers. So journaling is a big one for me. Also, meditation has been huge for me. And I'm also an active practitioner of yoga and have found that when you really study yoga, it really is a lifestyle, right? These five components. And so meditation is one of them, but also no diet, exercise, proper hydration and rest, (laughs) but all of these things, which like support you in coming back to yourself and feeling grounded and whole. But yeah, I think emotions chart journaling and meditation, because that's another conduit where you just got to be with yourself, just got to be with yourself and see what, what shows up in those spaces. I love that. Well, and having that be like a foundation and expanding your vocabulary around that so as to better go out in the world and create spaces of psychological safety, so as to be able to receive psychological safety when it's there, all of that. Right. Yeah, go ahead. Well, because again, like when I think about, and this is where I think like emotional intelligence is really key because everything has to start with self, right? It's self-awareness and then with awareness, self-regulation. And then from there, you can go to social awareness because now you have vocabulary to articulate what you are experiencing in social settings to acknowledge what others may be experiencing in that setting. And then with that acknowledgement, then together there's social regulation, right? Which is like higher tier skills of emotional intelligence, which is what we want all of our leaders to be doing. And many of them don't know how to express how they're feeling. So so it's like, hey, you know, these skills really do kind of stack on top of each other. They really do. Well, and then the thing I even was thinking about is how clearly this feeds into like your ability as a leader to also see interpersonal dynamics. Because if you can see those dynamics inside of yourself, you're going to be able to see them inside of in exactly. the rooms and in other people. Exactly. And that, but that's the thing that's, I think the hardest for people to understand is there's no like magic bullet to solving all of your HR issues, right? Because it it does have to like inner work comes first, right? Um, And if you don't have the vocabulary to even articulate what's going on with self, then how are you going to 
try to even impress upon others what's going on in these social social interactions and social settings. It's so good. And it's such an important foundation for the rest of it and for the culture shifts that I know that you work, like you work on shifting and like that you work with people on, because I mean, that's what everyone's after. Everyone's like, we want to create a culture of belonging. We want to be able to, like, that's the conversation so many people are in and being able to equip them to, and equip ourselves to actually have the inner resources to be able to navigate what comes up in rooms. And I'm curious about this. So this has been something in my journey that's come up within the last year or so where so much of my focus has been on and I've seen I've seen this with clients like I see this in other places but I'm just going to own that this is this is a question specifically for me Marie so okay <laughs> so, so so like like often there's this balance right of like there's self work and there's the like emotional intelligence and there's like our ability to regulate in partnership and our ability to be in a group and go hey what's mine here and be aware yeah. of, and especially in DEIB conversations, like yeah. what is mine to be responsible for so that I can go be responsible mm-hmm. for it so that I can like come back in and be in right relationship with the community. And mm-hmm. I had a loved one actually point to this where they were like, oh, honey, you're hiding inside of self-work. Like your next level mm-hmm. is in healing and community. And I was like, shit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I know my like intuition is that that's not unusual and that a lot, like that it is actually like there's a degree of setting that foundation and then moving out into community mm-hmm. and being in community. And I'm curious about what that experience has been like for you and like what you see in your work in terms of balancing the inner work and also balancing the, because healing also in so many ways happens in community. Like how do yeah. we do both? Yeah. So this is definitely, so this is a, it's a both and. And what I will say, and this is part of me just being a learning and development professional, like learning never stops. So you're going to start working on yourself. You're going to be like, I figured it all out. And then you're going to go out in community and then something's going to trigger you and be like, oh, there's something there that I didn't figure out yet, which is okay. And that's like part of the process. (laughs) Like that's like part of it. So I think a little bit of this is just recognizing that you will kind of always be in process. For me, I have spent a lot of time like learning and working on myself, right? I'm I'm a coach, I'm a learning development person. Like I, me and like the self-help section are like this, right? I read a lot. And when I find myself in situations where I am triggered or like something no longer feels right or in alignment, that is time and space for me to like step away and investigate more of what that is. Right. But I don't think it has to be a, oh, let me do this first and then I'm going to go do this. I think it's very much working kind of back and forth and simultaneously in those capacities of working on myself, working on like social regulation and care. And then to your point, one feeds the other in terms of healing and progress. And oftentimes it's in community where we get all of that rich acknowledgement that further aids the healing. I love that you said that too. It's like, there's this kind of figure eight, like where they're feeding each other. And the thing you said in the beginning about how like, you think you've got it and then you go in a community and you're like, oh, no, God. I'm not okay. I'm not okay. Well, cause it's true. It's like, you know, that expression, like new level, new devil. As soon as you figure something out, something else is going to pop up because now you're ready for it, right? It's like, great, what's your next elevation? Oh, I figured this out. Like, I'm so good. Me and my inner child, blah, blah, blah. And then something else is going to show up. And you get to work on that next and you get to continue evolving in your development as a human, which of course is going to support how you can evolve with and in community and vice versa. 
Well, and being able to, what's also dawning on me, like that I feel like you synthesized so beautifully in like the earlier part of the conversation is that when you have that foundation of self, there's a place for you to go back to when you go out in community and you're like, oh, that activated me. You now have a language Mm -hmm. and a framework Mm -hmm. for being able to go inside of yourself and be like, okay, cool, what's mine? And then also go back out and like work on it in partnership with people. But if you don't have that anchor of self, it would be actually, and I don't even really know what, I'm like, what does it feel like probably to do it without the self stuff? Actually, like, let me think back far enough in my life, but it's, well, that's when I think about people who haven't spent some intentional time on self, I often think of folks who act as though they are not accountable for the experiences that they have in their life. They're not accountable for situations that occur, right? There's a lot of victim mindset. Things are happening to me because there's no ownership of what's actually theirs, right? And so that can be a really, I think, dangerous place in social settings when folks don't even know what's theirs. And oftentimes, and, you know, Marshall Rosenberg, who's the author of Nonviolent Communication, speaks about this idea that you really only need one person in a conversation to be practicing nonviolent communication for it to impact the relationship. Oh, cool. So even if the other person is like completely unaware, if you are aware of what's yours and can clearly see what's theirs, you engage with them differently, right? Because you can have more compassion, like, oh, they're hurting around that or they're triggered right now and can navigate that relationship from a place of true empathy right? And choosing not to get triggered, choosing not to escalate the situation, right? Based on what you can see in your own experience, because you've done the work, right? So there is something like really powerful to that too, of like, oh, I've seen people who haven't done their inner work and that's not my responsibility. (laughs) You can't do their work for them, right? So there is an element of that too, I think. I love that you said that too, because I think the thing I'd bottom line for everybody listening is like that skill of being able to recognize what is yours, but also what's not yours, Mm -hmm. like is so important. And also, I mean, there's, it's not like there's always a really, I'd imagine, I mean, in my experience, there isn't always a clear line. Like you are sort of like, there's the stuff that's mine and yours and then ours. And then there might be Mm -hmm. stuff that's kind of on the line and that maybe you need to like have a conversation about to see if it's yours or theirs or like how Mm -hmm. you work through those Mm -hmm. things that are sort of on the line. But but having that starting place of being able to be clear on that. I actually had one of my first coaches had me do an exercise around that. She was, it was literally like, make a list, what's mine, what's theirs and Mm -hmm. have it be very separate. Well, it's also like part of that is like when we, again, like kind of dialing it all the way back to some of those like emotional acknowledgement type of exercises, like the feelings list and things like that, being able to say like, I feel, <laughs> right, I'm experiencing, right? And then to even offer, you know, we, we do this sometimes with clients, we do like a whole workshop around embodied leadership and some components of you leveraging nonviolent communication. And one of the exercises that we offer people is like, okay, like, read this scenario that could be potentially triggering for a number of different reasons and consider how you would respond to acknowledge like what is happening in the situation. And oftentimes the best way to do that is to take whatever emotional trigger that you're having first to acknowledge like, ooh, this is making me feel, right? And then to offer something for the other party in the dialogue to be able to articulate what their experience of the same situation is. So that could sound like, hmm, oh, that must feel, or it seems as though, 
or things of that nature, which offer suggestions, but are still coming from what you're observing. So they're not fact, right? Just like in my experience, and the way I'm experiencing this is, which kind of opens the door for someone to either affirm that is what they're also experiencing or how they're relating to it or not, which means they're going to have to find different words to say what they are experiencing, which of course is super empowering because now they get to own some stuff, (laughs) right? It's like, oh no, like that's not what I was thinking or yes, that is what I meant. I am trying to insult you. I do think dot, 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 right? It just creates space for people to actually just own their stuff real time. Well, and it also, it sounds like it also creates a lot of space for people to, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking of times when I've been in conversations actually with some of those really challenging supervisors or with like that we referenced earlier on in the conversation where I'm contrasting it with some of the communication that happened in those spaces where it's like, Mm -hmm. and it maybe not, it wasn't necessarily through like a triggering situation or something, but where how often those relationships and those leadership patterns are marked by this tendency to look at a situation and then declare what it is like for the whole room. And so it's kind of like, it like sets up, there's a power dynamic. So it's sort of like, okay, now I am kind of beholden to what the, mm-hmm. like what you see as the situation, whereas like nonviolent communication and what you're describing really, really beautifully is like the ability to communicate what your experience is and leave room for other people to communicate what their experience is. Yeah. But it's exactly that of being willing to just acknowledge like your experience and your truth is yours. Can you leave space for other people to have their experience and their truth? right? Which is like all of like inclusive leadership. Can you make space for everyone's experiences and everyone's truth to coexist? Yeah. And like really have that be okay and not have everybody need to be on the same page or not have. Hey, yeah, it's okay. You sometimes, I mean, it's very powerful to walk away from a conversation and be like, I don't think we're connecting. So I'm going to just have us pause now. You're like, yep. I think we're in two different conversations. I feel like we can't quite catch the same wavelength and be like, so why don't we just leave it at that and just agree that we're not on this. Like, that's a very powerful thing to do. It'd be like, we've been trying for a while, (laughs) you know? Yeah. But there, there is something to that of just recognizing when that's what's occurring. That's really cool. Well, and I feel like that's a really great actionable thing right there is like when you're missing each other, actually, like you can hit pause, like you can excuse yourself. Right. Be like, exactly. And, And choose to come back to that at a later time or not. Yeah. It's like hitting pause owning your experience. What other practices, like practices or things would you offer? Like if someone's listening and they're like, okay, I want to incorporate more of a, either a trauma-informed approach or mm-hmm. nonviolent communication, which I also know there's a training for that, which is wildly accessible. So like if anyone's yeah. listening to that and is yeah. curious. Google it. They're like all over the country, all different languages, really powerful tools and resources. So the thing that comes to mind, like we leverage, a there's a, a framework that I leverage with clients, especially when it shows up, shows up a lot in like confronting conversations or especially around addressing microaggressions or bias checking in the workplace. Those can be really difficult for conversations for people to have. And largely those conversations are difficult because emotions show up. And if you're not prepared to deal with them, that can be a mess. (laughs) So, um, Right. It's like, get ready because the emotions are coming. So what I always remind people is like, okay, well, first just take a step back and consider 
and acknowledge that the emotions are present and that you are having a reaction. Like before you say anything, before you engage, just acknowledge for yourself, oh, I am feeling some kind of way. And even in your own internal dialogue, being able to articulate, how are you feeling? What is that making you feel? And then from there, being able to kind of step out of the emotional space. So coming out of your body and choosing to look at it like from the headspace of like, okay, well, what is happening, right? And from there, being able again for yourself, this is all internal dialogue, right? And then from there, discerning for yourself, well, okay, what if this is mine and what is over there, right? So this is what's happening and I'm having this response, right? Okay, why would I be having this response? What is this connected to, right? What is, oh, there's a, a great quote of start listening to what people are needing instead of what they're thinking about you, right? So just like, huh, right? So whenever we have these these moments of like, huh, I'm being triggered, I'm activated, something doesn't feel right, like come out of it, right? And just like, what actually just happened? And usually if in that moment, we are having an unmet need because something doesn't feel right, right? So that's really powerful data to be like, oh, I am feeling this way because dot, dot, dot. And then from there, you can then choose whether or not you want to engage in a social conversation about that. Right. So have the inner dialogue, but then choose like, okay, do I want to address this in this social setting? And is now the time to do that? Because choosing to address it is also going to require emotional energy. This is again going back to like choosing our moments of empathy, choosing who and when and where we want to be vulnerable. It's like, great. Once you know and can acknowledge what's happening for you, decide, right? Do I want to open myself up to have this conversation with another human right now? Because you don't have to. You don't have to, right? But that then takes it to another place. So that's just, again, like three steps in the framework that we use in terms of thinking about engaging these conversations. It's like, well, just have a little conversation with yourself um, and check in and see where you're at. I love that. I also love that the last piece feels really, really important around like being able to identify the need and actually realistically ask yourself if this is the environment where you want to get it met. Because there are often environments where you're, for example, working in a big company that's not a lot, like it's not in this conversation and where it's not safe. And it's like, actually, are you trying to get milk? Actually, I don't love that saying here, but that, have you heard that phrase? Like, are you trying to get milk at a hard- hardware store? Like they're not oh, going to... I have not heard this saying. Like, well, I don't like not going to because the store can be whatever we want if we sell that here. Exactly. And it it implies that like you're dumb for going to the hardware store. It's just like you happen to be locked in a hardware. It's the metaphor. We need to like adjust the metaphor. Um, It's not the right right metaphor. metaphor, But it's like actually recognizing that you are in a situation where it actually might not be safe to get that need met. It might not be safe to put yourself out there in that way. And like that that's a very real reality for people. Yeah. And it it is. And that's where I think, again, like a lot of that personal risk mitigation comes in of like, well, what is it worth to me to have this conversation now? What do I gain? And potentially what could I lose? Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a very real conversation, especially if you identify with any marginalized community of, you know, is, and another expression, I'm not too funny, but like, is this the hill you want to die on? Not a great saying. Not a great saying. But again, it's like, but but really choosing, like, where do you want to insert your voice? Um, and there can be great power in activating your voice in those moments, or it could lead to potential harm, right? Especially if, again, you have not done a lot of that self-regulation to be prepared for whatever comes. Like, I am a firm believer on if you're good with you, there's very little that can impact you externally if you are good with you, 
mm-hmm. right? Because then when, you know, people come at you, if you're being aggressed at, there's always opportunity to be like, oh, but that's a them problem, not a me problem, right? If you're good with you, right? And you can clearly see that. But when you're not good with you, that's when you can be very easily triggered, very easily pulled into conversations that actually end up being more damaging to you and to others because your stuff's not all the way together. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of, I have a dear friend who is a person of color and she says, and this is just her her experience, not applying it to everybody by any stretch of the imagination, but it really struck me. She was like, in the moments where I choose to speak, it's costing me something and it's impactful, but it's coming at a cost. And so like, there are moments where I will choose not to speak and it's like, and that's also okay. And one of the reasons why it's like, I have it that the work that like you're doing in the DEIB space that so many people are doing in the DEIB space around like actually shifting this on a systemic and cultural level to create systems and communities that can hold, like can hold more of this is so important. So that it's not like, it's not just on you. It's not just right. like, you'll always be in that individual conversation because that's an important thing for you. And also like, it doesn't have to just be like, I have to handle all of this so that I can feel mm-hmm. safe because all of this is fucked. Right. Um, right. Yeah. But that, that's again, you know, that's always, I think the call for like more allies. Can we get more people to do their own effing work? <laughs> like, 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 could you be good so we could finally have a conversation about the power dynamics in this organization, for example? Because usually the people who are oppressed are ready to have the conversation long before the people in power. So how can we get the people in power to actually do their work and own what's theirs? That's the hardest part. That's, I think, the hardest part. Even now, like this past week, I had a conversation with a potential new client and we were talking about their goals and we kind of got caught in this conversation about how we were going to support their executive leadership team around their DEI goals because it's a predominantly male, all white executive leadership team. And when they came to them with a training around power and privilege, they found that people were triggered and they weren't able to talk about it candidly. It's like, okay, so what that tells me is these folks are not doing their own work, right? Because they're not clear about what's theirs. They can't be honest about how it makes them feel. There's probably some trauma and healing in their own background around some of these things where they don't feel safe to have this conversation. Mm. But until they can own that, right, it's going to be very difficult to be in one conversation together as an organization. Yeah, it's really true. I see that often too, like in my work. Actually, one of the things that's making me think of, I don't know if you've ever, I haven't talked to you much about the work I've done with, um, there's a company called Soul Focus Group. I don't know if you're familiar with them at all, but they kind of do like a hybrid of anti-racism work, but like through the lens of spirituality. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I really appreciated about the way that they talk about it in their trainings is like, is thinking about DEIB work as a spiritual conversation. And Mm -hmm. where it's like, for the people in power, it's like, it's a personal responsibility. And also it's a personal responsibility. It's a personal, it's like empowering people to do their own work and also really getting, like there's this place of really getting to the point where you realize that on a collective level, it's like, there's a cost to us, like spiritually for not doing this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for not being in the conversation and like not everyone is there yet like to the point that they can see that but it's like it's really it really seeing it as like it's for everyone and I we kind of spoke to it a little bit and earlier on in the conversation but I'm curious for you Marie like how is this work spiritual for you is there a connection to your spirituality or like how do you see that connection playing out yeah well I think for me when I think about 
spirit, right? And that's largely driven by this idea that we are the collective. Each one of us are part of the collective, right? Each one of us have individuated power that is part of a greater power, The thing that I think is challenging in the DEI space is oftentimes people do not see themselves as part of the collective. And what we're constantly battling against is trying to convince people that they are part of a whole. There is a lot of, oh, I'm separate from because, 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 right? Even when we think about the ways that people identify, we use our identities as a way to hold ourselves as separate from everyone, right? And that can be useful, right? If we look at it as a way of examining different values of the collective whole. And that can also be really damaging if we start to see all of that individuation as the actual goal of why we're on the planet. I like to think that the goal of why we're on the planet is to experience as much variety that there is on the planet, which I actually, I had um, another coach colleague say to me, you know, that is the definition of abundance. Oftentimes we think of abundance in terms of this like money or material things, which is all proxy for the sheer breadth of pleasure and experience that is available to us on this planet. And the beautiful thing about inviting variety into your social center and your social circles or variety into your workplaces is you get to experience more of that breadth, which one would argue is the entire purpose of life is to be able to live in this full abundance, to experience it, to express it, right? To share it. And so until we as individuals start to see ourselves as part of that collective opportunity for abundance, right? We are essentially cheapening our own life experience. So that is all of DEI work, is trying to convince people that we are part of a whole, that we are part of a whole. And yes, we're all different, but yeah, that's on purpose so we could experience more of what's available. I want to cut that, like make it a blurb and like splice it in like 500 different places because that was so incredible, like such good medicine. Hmm. Yeah, but that's my answer. Yeah, it's spiritual work. It's trying to, it's, which is also like, I don't think we've touched on this yet, but this happens in meditation of like, are you willing to suspend ego? right? Could it not be about you, 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 right? Which is oftentimes what you can achieve in meditation or in really deep prayer. It's like you disappear, (laughs) right? And you really do connect back with like the whole something bigger. Actually, that is the first place I ever, actually not, not the first place. I wouldn't say I experienced it before that, but the thing that really like blew the lid off the whole thing for me was uh, plant medicine. It was like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, the, like mm -hmm. being like brought to tears by the connectedness of it all. Yeah. And the, yeah, just there's so much, so much there. Well, so first off, what's the most transformative or impactful modality experience or like healing kind of a container that you've ever moved through? Yeah. So I think, I mean, you already talked about, but definitely like plant medicine, because it is like, I don't want to call it a shortcut to spirituality, but it is, um, it just like accelerates that experience of connection to the whole. So that would be like my number one. Was it ayahuasca or mushrooms or both? No, I 5-MeO-DMT, which is like straight shot, very, very quick, but extremely, extremely powerful experience. And it was, again, and yeah, I had not experienced any other plant medicine before that. So it was like, 
in the um, deep end girl. Yeah. You just yeah, like dove like, right okay. in. But it was very much. And I think the thing that I learned from that experience too, and I was just very fortunate and feel very grateful to have really astute guides and like angels who supported the experience for me because the one piece of advice they gave me is like, well, make sure that you have a specific question. And it was very much literally whatever question you have will be answered in that experience. And there is this profound experience of your connection to everything. And uh, I'm going to cry, (laughs) but it is, it, it is very much just allowing the ego to disappear and for you to fully experience the abundance that is our collective whole. Mm. I asked what the question was, what your question was when you went in. Oh, my question was, how is it possible to hold the experience of God and humanity in the same space? That was my question. What was the answer you got? Um, They're not separate. <laughs> they're mm. not. And I was like, oh, there's... Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, and Yeah. <laughs> See, now I'm like, where are my tissues? Um, But yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. There's like, that's beautiful, like healing. I can hear how much healing would be in that. It's just very, very powerful. And I think, and also too, and, you know, since that experience, I've spent a lot of time like exploring and like reading and learning more just about plant medicine and capabilities and even like where the study of plants is going now. Because it has tremendous capacity for healing the mind and spirit, like tons and tons of research studies around how how we can leverage these plants to heal people from addiction, from depression, from all types of you know mental health ailments. It really is the, this beautiful medicine, right, to heal the soul. Amen to that. Yeah, it's wild. I actually need to do. I want to do a plant medicine episode because I, it's something I'm really passionate about, but I don't, I like need to find, I feel like somebody who actually, I, maybe we'll have you back on and we'll just talk about plant medicine. I'm not um, an expert. I know, I, two non-experts talking about, talking about plant medicine. No, but it really like, thank you so much for sharing that. And that's a really, it's like th- these experiences are so with plant medicine are so incredibly profound and it feels like trying to communicate these lessons that are so powerful and universal using like I don't know, like like a Scrabble board or something. Oh yeah, like well, I mean, words are completely <laughs> inefficient. Like <laughs> language is language is completely inefficient. It is a very poor substitute for the actual experience of what this is. And it's so funny. That was one of my friends told me um, before we went on the journey together. Which she was, <laughs> it was so funny because when she awakened, she said, "You know, I tried to tell you, but it can't be told." And very literally, that is what this experience is there are no words that can express what an experience like that is. So true. That's really, really so true. Marie, for you, how do you personally define what it means to be a leader? Oh, so for me, a leader is a person who's willing to go first. I think that's probably my simplest definition, being willing to go first. When you think about the, it's like, I think a lot of people would say right now, it feels like we're on a, precipice or like a turning point as a collective where we're being invited to step into a new way of being with each other that has been available in spaces, but not across the board like previously. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious for you when you think about the 
quality, like if you could imagine one quality or way of being that you would want to instill on the new generation of leaders, like something you'd really want to see in them, what would that thing be? I think it would be compassion. And that's both for self and for others. I think in general, I think humans are too hard on ourselves (laughs) in a lot of ways. And it creates a lot of, you know, dis-ease, right? Um, So just be like kinder to yourself, be kinder to others. Mm. Pretty simple. I love that. And Marie, I have no doubt that people listening to this will want to find you online, your programs. Like, where can we get more of Marie? Like, where can people find more of you? Yeah. Well, my website has like all of the information about all the things. That's uh, mariedevoe.com. And I am not a big fan of social media, but you can also find me on LinkedIn. That's probably the one platform that I do take a look at from time to time. That's awesome. And do you have any programs or anything? Like, I know you take Um, one-on-one coaching clients and stuff, but do you have any? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, well, uh, we're always creating like these bespoke experiences for um, training and development for organizations. So that's always happening. And then we are currently in enrollment now for our facilitator certification program. So that is a container really at train the trainer for people who are holding group conversations that are hard or challenging, but you're still trying to convey a message or get something across. So supporting leaders with inclusive facilitation skills and you can find information about that on our website. I love that. Yeah. Everyone go check it out. Marie, it was such a gift having you here today. It's just, it's always a gift when you speak the earth, earth moves. Uh, so thank, oh thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And yeah, it's just, it's really, really good to see you. Uh, this was awesome. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Cool. Everyone, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for joining us and have a good rest of your week. <laughs>